The other form of play, which is maybe a little more the book default, are long-form games or chronicles. And there are a lot of things to consider. You could argue that maybe you don't need to mess around with the rules as much, although as you play with them, you have more leeway to as you get to know your players and what they like and what resonates with them. I find the best chronicles in pretty much all of the games that I've played do adjust the rules as you go, and there's a certain flexibility there. Um, but one of the most important things, and with Changeling especially, this can inform what you do with the rules a lot, is when are you going to set your game? Unlike the other games in the World of Darkness, Changeling really only has one time period, because Dark Ages Fae is a completely different game, and yet the backstory of Changeling in the Interregnum is incredibly rich, and I've been hearing more and more from players online running games in the Interregnum, and so deciding when you want to set your game and what does that mean for the rules, because holding and trods and even which arts are available and glamour dynamics and bedlam dynamics were completely different before the resurgence and so you know that's a really important starting point for figuring out okay where are we what does that even mean for system do i want to spend some time looking at the default for c20 asking what themes does that evoke what themes are different now so what do i want to change simon has definitely done more of that than i have but it is something that i've grappled with a fair bit in my games as well the period you set your game in is in some ways limiting in a long-form game because you end up spending a lot of time in that time period but in the same way that Remembrance can be really useful in a one-shot where you build in a bunch of character hooks into your characters through Remembrance and past life shenanigans. Remembrance also plays forward in a long-form game where when somebody finally dies off, they come back. And you can choose to make those chapter breaks where, all right, we're moving past the expected lifespan of these people we've been dealing with do you want to re-roll because you could hang out in the dreaming and slow down your aging but you're going to take a lot of nightmare for that or you could be your your character's next incarnation when we come back around do you want to do that and one of the things i found really interesting doing a long form game is i've given my players a couple of chances to completely respec their characters just because the rules have changed significantly since we started each time my players have been like no i'm going to keep things as close to the way they were before as possible because i don't want to have that played by a different actor in season two thing going on which wasn't exactly what i expected i actually find that that's pretty true in my long form games is People get really, really attached to their characters. I think maybe because I storytell more than I play, I am less attached to my characters than a lot of the other gamers that I run with. I'm 
willing to do stupid stuff because it'll put the spotlight on me, even if it might kill my character, whatever I can roll another character. But I find that is definitely not the default, which also gets you into kind of a dynamic of how high stakes do you want your chronicle to be? You know, in a one shot, you can be kind of wild and loose and maybe you kill some people and maybe you don't. And eh, we're just playing for a night. It's fine. But in a long form game, I have really I've I've had players that kind of have like anxiety attack breakdowns if bad enough things happen to their characters. I don't tend to run into that in games I run because I lean pretty heavily on aesthetic horror, but I don't really love killing players. So I don't tend to put people in situations where out and out death is high chance. When character death has happened in my games, it's generally because a player went looking for it. But I've definitely seen it in Chronicles where I'm a player. And so I feel like it's something that needs to be managed, especially with both the impermanence and kind of psychological brutality of chimerical death. There can be the feeling of, oh, I can kill a character and it'll be okay because it won't really kill them. But, like, terribly traumatic. So navigating that can be different than you expect it to be. Yes. One of the very small adjustments I had to make to the nightmare system we're using was that I'd written into the rules that being chimerically killed while you're trapped in one of your nightmares automatically ends it because you go into a banality coma, all of your magic's gone. You were the one powering this whole thing the whole time, even if it was parts of you that you don't like that were running the show. Therefore, it makes sense that, you know, it's mostly over, if not completely over, when you chimerically die. I had to add in there, not that because it came up, but because it occurred to me partway through the game, that if that's a possibility and it's well known, people will exploit that, and they will just have their friends kill them chimerically to end a nightmare scene that's going badly. And like I said, it hasn't come up in the game, but I had to add a little comma semicolon note to the end of that sentence indicating that if you intentionally die while you're in a nightmare that's a banality trigger but other than that chimerical death ends up being a really useful sort of tool in a longer form game for people who want to try on different characters but they totally expect to come back to this one and also for the other players because it offers you an opportunity to be a different version of the same character even if you're just playing their completely mundane playing it up normal person the one that they've hidden away in the the, the corner of their fairy mind and we haven't had that happen in this game yet but those things can be really jarring and laughter-inducing, but it's I laugh so I don't cry laughter-inducing, I think. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's just kind of core to my experience with Changeling. The thing that I was thinking of while you were describing that if you die in a nightmare, I think the way I would run that, and what makes sense in my head anyway, is that if you go into a banality coma during a nightmare, 
you will actively avoid anything that will push you back to chrysalis and its subconscious because for that duration, you know that you will crystallize back into the resolution of that nightmare and that part of your psyche will resent being unexpressed, being repressed in its moment. And so for that particular banality coma, you become afraid of the things that you subconsciously associate with your chimerical self and even going so far as to say that if it's a traumatic enough death you might never come back from it even if you aren't that far down your banality track because you will so actively avoid triggers that would bring you out of that coma you could even see the whole story about hey this happened to our motley mate well or we're gonna have to force this on him it's going to be really bad, but they're destroying themselves now. Oh, God. Like, I don't even know that you need a systematic force there. I feel like that looming threat and stories about a couple changelings that tried the trick you mentioned as cautionary tales would be both really interesting and at least with my players, drive them to never even think of attempting that. Oh, that would be pretty lovely, too. One of the weird things you run into with a long-form game is the prequel incompatibility with the main product, where I only remember this being a thing for one of the mage games. There were... Victor's going to know this better than me, but there was a mage game. It was Dark Ages Mage, and it it has kind of the same weird half-relationship with modern mage that Dark Ages Fae does, it was intentionally designed to be set before the hermetic sphere ideas were inflicted on everyone. But you have hermetics, and they still use the pillars and foundations. I know a lot of people that love that game. And it, it does have, similar to Dark Ages Fae, it has some really good hooks and some really interesting prequel about some of the groups. But yeah, you, you definitely get into the same dynamics of like, how does this map forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the big problem using the prequel materials for Changeling because Dark Ages Fae is a completely different system and Graceful Wicked Masks is the exalted system. So at least it has that going for it. It's compatible with the other things in that setting, but it's also systematically incompatible with Changeling and Dark Ages Fae. So you end up with the awkward problem of, am I doing an Interregnum game? If so, which setting am I using? Which system am I using? Am I doing a Mythic Age game? Do I want to go all the way back to Graceful Wicked Masks for that? Because it's almost broken, unplayable in its current state. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't think going back to Exalted is even an option. And that's not limited to Changeling. The Fair Folk books are kind of singularly unique in that they're not designed for players at all. But even the Exalted groups that are meant to be prequels to the other World of Darkness splats, it's supposed to be rough narrative prequel. Like, that's not a path forward. <laughs> it's just not. You know, but thinking from Dark Ages or working through the Interregnum, that's a much more narratively approachable concept. And Simon and I have spent a bunch of time talking about how can you slowly transition these systems? What makes sense to invoke? What doesn't make sense to invoke? 
um, it's not a clean path. You really have to do that work yourself. But the idea of playing through some of the changes and getting to decide what really happened is really engaging. It also puts the characters in an interesting place psychologically of, okay, we've gotten to the modern era. Cool. So we as players all remember exactly what happened. Let's do the thing that all the White Wolf writers had to do and rewrite those stories and rewrite them with their ridiculous broken remembrance dynamics. How do our modern characters remember what happened? Which is a really fascinating exercise in itself, and not one that all players would love doing. But it's something that's kind of unique to Changeling, and I think it's a really fun opportunity. It's kind of the one cool thing you get out of the systematic mess. I say take it, because the systematic mess certainly adds more... Uh, road bumps than advantages while you were talking i remembered a retro review i suppose is the word of chrono trigger i watched recently where the person who put it together was talking about parallel storytelling and that's a a device i haven't used in any of my changeling games but it's totally there because of the reincarnation remembrance dynamic where you could tell all three time periods at the same time just do a, we're doing the modern period. Oh, you have an opportunity to call on your remembrance to a time just after the shattering. Now we're going to play a little bit of the interregnum setting. Okay, we wrapped up that story, bumping back to the modern period. Okay, we wrapped up that story too. But what set all these things in motion? Let's jump back to Graceful Wicked Masks and the Exalted Period and see what really happened there oh but you don't remember it if you time your your jumps and your single timeline climaxes just right so that you're moving from climax to climax without the filler downtime between you can carry multiple stories with multiple characters in different time periods in a way that lets you be really, really efficient, in a way that you probably could pull off with Mage and maybe even with Werewolf a little bit because they both have reincarnation dynamics too, but they're not as central to the game as they are in Changeling. Yeah, the other thing that that dynamic of the, the time jumps and the Misty Remembrance makes me think about is Changeling is also one of the only games where in a long-form chronicle... If you run it the way it's written, you shouldn't be gaining power. You should be losing it. You know, that gets into choosing game balance and deciding on what do you want the power dynamics in your game to be like. We talked about that a little bit in the one-shot section. It's kind of a major point for a chronicle as well. When you're doing the normal power progression, if you power too quickly and your characters reach the point where you have problems kind of improving compelling challenges for them that's an issue but then sitting down with your players and saying okay so this is the setting if we start early interregnum and play through this maybe play through multiple lives maybe you're a handful of changelings and you find like one of the like five bale fires that is powerful enough to keep you young that is sparked anywhere reasonable in America or in whatever continent you're on, 
and you do decide to actually have these characters survive longer than mortals would, during the interregnum arc, they're still going to be hit with more and more and more banality. And how do you represent that? How do you make that work with the systems? Because the systems are still designed on an experience arc that makes you more powerful over time. A long-form game can very easily get into, no, we're really going to deal with the implications of banality. And maybe every time you go into banality coma, you come back and you've forgotten some arts or realms or major parts of what happened in your life. That can be really interesting, but depending on your players, that could also be really, really not fun if you don't execute it properly. So I think that's an area that needs a lot of negotiation and a lot of explicitly stated expectations to have that work well. In Dark Ages Fey, there was a sidebar, I think, but it might have been a whole page talking about the difference between Fey specifically, but also changelings, and vampires. In Dark Ages Fey, True Fey, the firstborn in the anatomy, and the changelings, which in the modern period would be Kinane, all have the potential to be immortal. The two True Fey species, Splats, actually are immortal, and changelings could become immortal in Dark Ages Fey. But there's this whole aside about how the Fey mind is actually built for eternity. They don't end up with the madness of vampires because vampires are fundamentally mortal and their minds just are not equipped to handle it. And the way that Fey minds are equipped to handle eternity, at least according to Dark Ages Fey, is through their awkward relationship with linear time in what could be to the outside world a thousand years, a fae in their freehold or in the fairyland could experience only a few minutes passing. Likewise, a fae who decides to sit down and really knuckle under and study this confusing magic text could spend a thousand years doing that because they're immortal, but they forget things while they're doing it. I feel like it was kind of a narrative effort to make the you-can-forget-cantrips thing make sense, but it goes a little bit farther than that because it also makes room for the Bright Road plot in Shining Host and the reason why changelings forget things between lives in modern changeling and the way you could put potentially come back as something completely different if you were in an anime who lost their anchor. And all of these things, well, one, give you the opportunity to respect your character, which is great, if it turns out you screwed up, but also, like, they point at the fundamental awkwardness of being really a, a being of spirit trapped in a human body. As much as you are both human and fey in Changeling, most people play the game that their fey identity is the true identity. And if that's the case, that we're built for eternity, our minds don't necessarily need to hold on to all this boring, mundane detail and we forget it thing, that has a place, especially in long games where you encounter that more regularly. 
it makes more narrative sense and it makes it possible for you as a storyteller or you as a player to build your character around themes rather than details. Which, especially for a long-form game, I think building around themes is important. Every long-form game that I have run across all systems, I always get into the game with an idea. I have a story I want to tell. I have an arc I'm trying to guide my players towards. And I'm almost always able to do it. But I also generally end up in a situation where the details get in the way. And when I first started storytelling in like late high school, college, that was a problem. I All of my games fell apart because I just was not flexible enough. And the first Chronicle that didn't fall apart that I ran for three years, the thing that was different is I just went, okay, my players are going to do ridiculous things. Sure, fine, whatever. I'm just going to roll with it and let them do it. And that's kind of the approach I've taken since then. My current long-form game, I've even thrown out the I have a plan. I only planned the first story. And I planned the first story to kind of set a stage. And then, you know, wherever they've taken us, wherever my players have taken us by then, will inform what I do for the next story. And I'm trying not to look beyond the horizon because I want something that is more shaped by my players. Getting away from the details helps a lot. And even with a with a one-shot game, focusing on theme rather than the story you're telling can be super useful. Even though I'm currently storytelling a long-form game that's in year two now, I think, I keep coming back to the themes my, my players built their characters around. One of the characters is built around the theme of diminishing. Another player built their character around the theme of being conflicted about whether or not they are useful. There's probably a more concise way to say that, but the struggle of finding meaning kind of a thing. And all of the best storytelling sessions we've had so far have been when, for some reason or another, one of those themes ends up being present, even if it's not in the direct interaction with the player's character who's built on that theme. Sometimes just having that string resonating sets off something in the player. The one trick that I have found when trying to pull directly out of player themes, this is just the result of being a human and having interests and not being an automaton, you will find some of your players' characters more interesting than others. And, you know, it's very worth keeping track of spotlight time. And, you know, if someone is is doing an extra lift to pull the spotlight to them and it doesn't seem to be upsetting anybody, fine, you know, reward player engagement. But if the spotlight is drifting to certain players because you find their backstory more interesting, then it's worth taking some time to really make sure everyone gets that central stage. I'm struggling a little bit with that right now. It's a, a mix of the two. I have a player that did something that dragged the spotlight to them in a pretty meaningful way. I had the option of killing them, which they maybe kind of deserved, but brand new changeling player, and I didn't want to do it. And my resolution to, okay, this needs to feel significant enough to be repercussions for what they did, but not just outright kill them because brand new player, and I don't want to do that. 
And it's kept the spotlight on them for a while. And I am aware of that. And so I'm wrapping that story up and I'm like, okay, I need to make time to put the spotlight on my more cautious conservative players. Because even though they're cautious and conservative, they still need to have an enriching experience. And so you're going to hit a point where you really actively need to manage that. One of my players makes does my character care roles a lot because their character is fundamentally kind of a lazy person, but it's also a a defensive mechanism for their character. They disengage to avoid being drawn into situations where they might be triggered or where they might acquire a nightmare or have to dig into traumatic things, which I guess banality triggers and taking nightmare are different metaphors for that. But I failed to anticipate them making a do I care role. I just assumed they were going to not care about a plot point I was trying to foreshadow. And I forgot that unleashing was a thing for a minute. And when I dropped that foreshadowing in front of them, they just unleashed to skip to the end of the book. And while it was kind of a character building arc I had been planning on, it was not something I was ready for, and so the game had to be called on excessive player cleverness. But we're coming back to it next time we play, and it's going to be a really that-player-that-character-heavy evening. So much so that I don't think the spotlight's going to come off of them until at least the end of the evening. Which is good, in a lot of ways, but if I had a bigger table, that would be difficult to navigate and i'm not sure how i would do that for me i try not to worry too much about if the spotlight needs to be on a character because this story is about them for a game session that's fine in a long form game it's definitely a problem in a one shot you don't want that happening in a one shot but it's fine in a long form as long as they don't have the spotlight on them for like three sessions running and i I've avoided the three sessions running with the situation I just talked about, but it has been like three sessions over the last seven, which in a four-person game, I have four players, is too much. And again, what the boundary for that is will also depend on the thresholds of your other players. Because I've had players that don't want the spotlight on them. They want to be in the background. They want to pull some strings. They want to just hang out and role play a little. They don't want to like be on the spot because it's an anxiety issue. There are a number of different reasons players might not want the spotlight. And if you have a player that is having fun being a support person, fine. Don't try to force them into a play style they don't like. But if you have a bunch of type A players and the spotlight isn't getting a good round robin, then it becomes a problem. I find most game sessions do tend to center on one or two people just by the nature of how stories tend to get told and emerge. And one of the ways you can get around the spotlight hogging problem, I think, is to harken back to theme. If your game has a strong core narrative theme, or if you have a couple of players who have themes in common, even if the spotlight's on somebody else, you can strike a chord with other players by dropping in little touches that while maybe on the primary theme of the evening or whenever you play. The primary theme of the game, sometimes you can hit on things that have more than one emotional value, and you can 
definitely design a longer chronicle so that different moments of the game focus on different themes where in our current game our introductory chapter the theme of that game was mostly supposed to be community coming together the second chapter theme has been much more along the lines of family hurt i suppose is the best way to put it those pains that you can only give to somebody or get from somebody very close to you and so you can subtly push the spotlight towards other people by just having different themes you want to hit up in big arcs. Yeah, that is a really good way to tackle things. And having a couple smaller spotlights. So in the last game that I ran, the last session, I had the character that had their main emotional repercussion that's been happening that we're just wrapping up you know okay i knew it was going to drive the spotlight to them a little bit but i also had a knocker and i sort of explicitly made space for them to do a really cool thing and what was going on didn't necessarily have emotional resonance for them it wasn't that kind of spotlight moment but it was awesome cool i get to do the nifty thing that will contribute spotlight and there's the difference between you know, kind of what we've talked about a lot and why Nightmare can be a reward for a player, even though it's a penalty for a character, and that kind of fulfillment, but also just like that moment where, okay, I got to accomplish something, even if the story wasn't necessarily about me. And so you can kind of thread the needle that way as well, which is is nice. That's easier with certain character types than others. Knockers and Boggins, man, give them something they can build and accomplish, and most of those players are going to be thrilled. With other kits, it can be a little more challenging, but it's something to consider in making sure you sprinkle that into your sessions. He'd almost passed the alley when he heard a whimpering cry of pain. Even his foggy brain recognized the sound of a child in trouble. Who's there? he demanded. Lack of water and a touch of unease roughening his voice. He heard the sound of a shaky, indrawn breath, and silence answered him. Shaking his head at his own capacity for stupidity and fearing an attack at any moment, the owl shuffled down the dark alleyway, feeling his way along the wall until he reached an area where he thought the child might be hiding. Come on out, he said. I won't hurt you. Yeah, that would certainly convince me if some filthy street bum had me trapped back here, he thought. Are you okay, kid? For answer, he felt a small hand tug on his sleeve, a hand that held out something that caught just the tiniest sparkle from the street light at the end of the alley. Here, mister. A young voice, probably a boy, Neal surmised, offered, It's all I got. Take it. The child pressed the bauble into his hand. Incongruously, the child giggled as Neil bent closer to see what the child thought of as a payoff. I enchant thee, stranger, the child's voice piped, sounding gleeful. Now you have to help me get away from them. Neil's world turned sideways as lights and colors exploded inside his head, sending him to his knees. Odd bits of dreamlike memory stirred and whirled as he tried to find his balance. He felt that he had changed somehow, grown taller perhaps or taken on some new power he didn't understand 
the truth of his existence remained frustratingly elusive. Hardly daring, he opened his hand to see the child's marble lying in it, a marble that glinted and shone with the glamour infused within it. He just had the strength and presence of mind to firmly grasp the child and clasp him to his chest. Stumbling to his feet, Neil moved towards the lighted end of the alleyway, carrying the child in his arms, and got his first good look at what he held. The child's dark, curly hair covered his head and goat-like legs. His green-brown eyes held first mischief, then fear, as he gazed at Nial. A satyr? The word came to Nial from deep within, cresting and flowing into his thoughts like an ocean swell. He marveled. I know what he is. The other thing to really consider with Spotlight, and I've thankfully been spared this in my Changeling games, but I have smacked right into this barrier in other games I've run, is players not being able to make it to sessions. Maybe players not being able to make it to a lot of sessions, because real life happens, and it's a lot harder to have a consistent schedule now than when we were all kicking around in high school or college. Because as intensive as college seems, at the same time, it also has a very predictable cadence that adult life just does not seem to have. And having players appear and disappear is a major challenge, especially if you have two sessions that butt up against each other, or maybe are even the first half and the second half of the same scene. I had a player in my last Mage Sorcerer's Crusade Chronicle who just dropped a chronicle-changing sphere effect. It was very clearly a terrible idea, and he didn't care. He made it clear. He didn't care. He was going to do this terrible idea that was going to rock the world and have huge repercussions, and then he didn't make it to five sessions. And there was a lot of, well, what do we do with him not here? There, there were some hurt feelings among the other players about how that played out. They weren't mad at me, but they were very frustrated with him. Because he got a lot of choice narrative cookies. Or I should say his character did. He didn't get to eat any of those cookies because he wasn't there. And so managing that, especially if you're making plans around where to put the spotlight. And then maybe those plans don't pan out because something happens to someone. There are a lot of different ways to think about and manage that. But trying to minimize situations where if someone doesn't make it, it's going to wreck your ability to move the story forward is really pretty important. Yes, my table is so small. If we have one person who bails, we can't play most of the time. Sometimes you can get around that by having really, really clever players. I can think of one game where I managed to, my character, I suppose I should say, my character, who was not the one who was supposed to be doing most of the stuff, managed to steal the spotlight from an absent character because he was close enough. But it was one of those things where if you have a a storyteller who is really attached to the rules or players who are really attached to the rules, that can get really hard to navigate. I feel like Changeling has better tools than most of the other World of Darkness games for dealing with that from the storyteller side, because banality comas are a thing. And 
while mechanically they're triggered by taking more chimerical damage than you can sustain. Sure. I've always played that if my character needs to bail for, you know, real life reasons, it's banality. Like, I will take a banality point to duck out in a way that makes sense there. It doesn't do much for the storyteller if they needed my character to be there, but it, it does provide a narrative reason for characters to not be around. Yeah, I think that's a really good tool. I think another good tool with Changeling is the dreaming and personal questing. You know, with some other games, it can be hard to be like, oh, well, okay, I missed a game session that only actually represents like a couple days in game time. What can I really do with that? But say you have to go do a personal quest that you've been sent on to get rid of some banality, or you have to do some service to a court in the dreaming. Well, I can go off and do a catch-up session with the ST, and it can take as long as it needs to take, because I went into the Dreaming, and I will come back when it is bloody convenient for the story. So there's a little bit of leeway there to say, oh, I was called away, I came back, what happened that made sense for me has happened. I think the other thing that you can do if you're running games that use these themes if you run them as they're written in the setting with all of the like feudal infrastructure, which I tend to downplay, but I don't totally erase that context. There's a lot of weird obligatory stuff of, oh, I have to go do this for the She Lord. Oh, right. I swore to him I have a title. Oh, oh, hi, okay. Parliament representative. Oh, God. And you don't want to actually roleplay through any of that, but it's a great excuse to be absent for a couple sessions. Again, I don't tend to emphasize that. That certainly doesn't work if you're running in anime Nuniahi Menahune games, maybe a little bit with the Menahune. They have their own feudal structure. But that certainly works for super mainstream Kithane games. And that's not a context that all role-playing games give you. So different tools in that tool chest. The other really useful trick you can use, getting back to parallel storytelling is if you have a scene coming up that you need this specific character there for, but their player's gone, you can always dive into a past life for one of the other characters at the moment they're missing. And you could spend a session doing a side story about past life stuff, as well as doing a side story about questing into the dreaming. You have a lot of options to... Fill isn't exactly the right word, but to stretch moments where you're waiting for somebody to show up yeah that is something that i think could be really cool i'm starting to play around with remembrance in my game and i love the randomness of it and the oh you think of yourself this way here's a memory from a past life that only lines up with like 80 percent of that what are you going to do with that memory you know, there's a certain amount of not wanting to tell your players what their character is as the storyteller. That's dangerous territory. But there's also that fun experience of, oh, I found out this thing about myself I didn't know. How do I incorporate that? Huh. That you can invoke if you do it carefully. Mm-hmm. 
one of my players is playing a, a skin changer and they are about to inherit a new skin and that's going to be some pretty funny remembrance territory because the game isn't actually set up to handle remembrance from more than one set of lives but it's going to happen i mean i feel like the game needs to accommodate that reasons i want a selkie kith book or at least like a lore of the kith that includes all of the new mainline kith so that we could have a set of rules that deal with selkie skin what is the past life of this selkie maybe that person even still exists like the game has that concept. It's just not developed. One of the concepts that I tend to go back to a lot when I'm planning out Changeling games is I think World of Darkness has finally started adopting the idea, but the idea of a tick, a discrete unit of time that isn't uniform. The place I ran into it first was Hero System, but the idea that depending on the scale of the senior in, powers circle around a tick rather than around or a minute or an hour or a month or whatever if you're dealing with say the amount of time it takes a freehold to recharge and dispense more glamour talking about a tick if you're talking about the amount of time that using flicker flash takes you're talking about a tick and changing the cadence of the game can be a matter of adjusting which tick you're talking about or how long a tick is because a game where a freehold tick is a night is different from a game where a freehold tick is a phase of the moon is different from a game where a freehold tick is a year and a day and it comes up in changeling especially in regard to recharging power traits what counts as a tick because as written, the Nunahi tick is a season, while the Cathane tick is however long it takes you to find another human being. And both of those groups have completely different feels around their epiphanies. Yeah, and the other thing, the default tick that was written for Freeholds back before C20 was a knight. And the only thing that kept that from making epiphany completely irrelevant was the impact of, okay, if I actually take full advantage of this, I'm going to go screaming into Bedlam. I don't love that power dynamic. If you're a she and you're living in your freehold, Bedlam should be a very real, terrible thing that is nipping at your heels. If you're a commoner who has access to a holding and you use it a couple times a week, okay, that that is in the story. That is not written as crazy Bedlam territory, but if you can literally get the full value of a freehold a couple times a week, then I'm epiphanying why again? And so it ended up with this, is this a benefit or not situation? Whereas if you turn around and you say, all right, this freehold can dispense its rating and glamour in a week, that makes things very different. And maybe, you know, if you have a, a five, six level freehold, you know, because you pooled resources, six glamour in a week for a whole motley is still a benefit. And that to me is still pretty substantial, but it does change the dynamic of the game. And if you say we want a game where glamour is scarce and 
doing a weird effect is a calculation. Maybe it's two weeks. Mage actually invoked that decision explicitly in M20. They didn't in C20 explicitly, although if I recall correctly, when I read holding, it just says, this is how much glamour this produces. And they didn't give you a tick definition. And so I think it's more kind of implicitly there. I wish they devoted a few sentences to kind of talking through this. But if you want guidance on that and and how to think about theme, look at Node in M20. It talks about it explicitly, how it impacts the play in the field of the game. It's worth taking some time to think through, especially even as a storyteller looking at your players and being like, oh, they took like three dots of holding collectively, and I've got six players. Maybe they didn't think through this. And maybe you want to shorten your tick because you know what you have planned, as opposed to, oh, wow, I have four players and they took eight dots of holding collectively. I'm going to stretch this tick out because no. That that gives you tools to manage some of that stuff. And if you're moving through time periods where glamour goes through ebbs and flows, you still want to be explicit with your, your players that the value of the freehold tick is going to change over time. You'll want it to at least sort of follow the sine curve there, because if somebody takes five dots of freehold and it turns out they're almost worthless, they're going to be annoyed. Likewise, if somebody takes a dot of freehold and somebody else takes three dots of freehold and you come to a point in the game where freeholds produced way too much glamour, the three dot person is going to feel kind of screwed because they put dots into it when they could have put them somewhere else. But there are different time periods in the game where glamour is more or less available. In the Resurgence, freeholds should have probably just been a recharge, a full recharge for anybody who slept in them. During most of the Interregnum, maybe a point a month. Yeah, and that's interesting, actually, because that opens up the potential for a theme to explore if you play through the Interregnum and you decide you want to do the Resurgence, you could do this amazing thing where, okay, your freeholds have just slowed to a trickle and they're giving you a couple points a month and Epiphany is hard because who's really dreaming and this war is dragging on, the Vietnam War, and then suddenly the freeholds explode. And you're getting all this glamour and everything goes super high stakes for a couple weeks. And maybe you go in and it gives you access to the dreaming again and everything's amazing and your characters ride high on that. And then the sheet come back and you use the freehold oath regent system and they just walk in and they go, this is mine again. Thanks. Bye. No, I'm not letting you have any glamour from it. You can invoke some really interesting themes. Now, Going back to what Simon said, if players spend points on something, those points should matter. So there's definitely a need for negotiation and discussion there, and that being a, this is this is the main enemy for this arc, and how are you going to navigate it? But no, I'm not taking this away from you permanently, don't worry. But in terms of the theme and arc of the game, that's a very pivotal moment and a psychology of changeling society that was a big deal. And so the tick can be a way to really emphasize that and punch it. Using ticks also makes more room for doing bunks, partly because bunks are weird. They're just weird. They're hard to do in combat, and you need them to activate your combat powers sometimes. 
but using the narrative tick, or I don't remember who it was, but somebody in my friend group called it the Kabuki rule, where talking is a free action. That's the idea, where you have enough time to do a bunk if you come up with the right bunk kind of a thing. And then you still get your action. You're not splitting your dice pool because that's just awkward. But if it needs to be a big bunk, maybe the Kabuki rule doesn't go that far. Ticks yeah. can make the game a little bit more playable. Yeah, I I agree with that. The other thing I do to make bunks more manageable, the official C20 rules, and I know these because I read them, and these are the old rules as well. This has always been true. I read them and I, I just can't imagine running the game this way is you pick your bunk, you do your bunk. That is a full round. That is an action. So you've done your bunk and it succeeded. Cool. You got your successes. So now we're on to round two. Your enemies have done their thing. Now you get to roll your cantrip, whatever that cantrip is. Cool. Now the cantrip happens. So say that cantrip is like flicker flash well, okay, cool, and I got my extra actions. Changeling doesn't explicitly have the one magical effect around, but you get around to that last action, and you're like, I'm going to use this action to do the bunk for Flicker Flash next turn. And, like, that is about the most efficient that it gets. If you don't have Flicker Flash, it's like round one, I do a bunk. Round two, the effect takes place. Round three, I do another bunk. Round four, my second effect takes place. And especially when you're talking about a lot of the cantrips that add effects starting next round that will last for a few turns, that stuff just evaporates. And so I went, no, I'm not doing this. And I run it the way Mage Paradigm works. And you have to do instrumentation. But doing the instrumentation is the magic effect. It is what you're doing. So there isn't that division. It's whatever I did, I may have to roll to make sure it worked, but I'm immediately going to then get to roll the Arate because that is all happening together as one action. And that is how I treat bunks. What you do for the bunk is the cantrip. And so all of that happens in one round. It doesn't end up breaking anything or making it too terribly powerful. I do introduce the one magic effect around rule that Vampire has and Mage has. I just feel like that balances things out, even though it's not explicitly stated in Changeling. So if you use Flicker Flash, only one of those things gets to be a cantrip, thanks. Everything else is physical. Okay. I think the tick approach also helps make things more playable, but the bunk and cantrip as two separate round thing, I, I just, it does not result in great combat flow. That very night, we stole into the village once again, Garain and I. We asked Elzabeth to accompany us, since she, of all the local fae, understood the humans and their ways, and she might be helpful if we came across any problems. The idea that we might have trouble from mere humans was uncomfortable and strange, but Garain and I both agreed that there was too much at stake to be reckless. He had not been interested in hearing my stories about my frequent visits with Bridget, about the time when I was watching her splash about in the creek with friends, and she looked directly at me, hidden by the mists though I was. She saw me that day. I know she did. And I should have swept in then. I should have stolen her away before it was too late. But I did not. I did nothing. We were confident that Bridget's mortal family at least would still be true to the old ways. The lies of the church would not sway them. 
They had held to the oaths more strongly than any of the other families in Hayden's Creek. Elizabeth confided that she went to their doorstep in search of fresh cream and often found it. They, of all people, remembered us and kept faith, and we resolved that we would protect them, at least, as best we could. We even discussed moving them to another village, somewhere under our protection, where they could avoid the churchmen and continue on in peace. We entered the house easily. This time the door was not locked at all, and we entered without the need to call on our dominions. We walked past the mortals in their beds, past the cradle that had once held Priscilla and Bridget, and now held the newest baby, a boy, that murmured in his sleep when we passed. Finally, we came to Bridget herself, tucked safely underneath a rough woolen blanket on a pallet. Her skin glowed in the moonlight, a testament to her fairy heritage for those who knew what to look for, and she was so beautiful that I forgot myself entirely. Before Gurain could say so much as a word, I willed her to see me. I bent down to rest a hand on her shoulder and wake her, even though it was not my place to do so. Touching her was agony, but I could not take my hand away. Under the piercing ringing of my ears, I heard another sound, a high-pitched sound that rose higher and higher. When I finally pulled my hand away, I understood. Bridget was screaming. She had her blanket pulled up in front of her like a shield, and she held out an object in front of her that glinted like a knife in the moonlight, a silver cross. Pain stabbed me in the head once again as she yelled at me. Monster! She shrieked. Her mortal caretakers were all rising from their beds, murmuring in anger and fear, and her shouts were loud enough to rouse the entire village. I didn't fear them, or so I told myself, but the thought of facing... The priests, with their magic water and their chants, was too much for me. I retreated to the blissful darkness in the corner of the room, and I called down the mists so they could not see me. I watched Gorain the Tearbringer open his mouth to speak, and I felt a surge of hope. But as he inhaled to speak, one of the priests held up a small piece of bread and murmured something in a strange human tongue, and Gorain's voice died in his throat. Armies had fallen before his songs, but one mortal priest, with a piece of blessed bread, had silenced the tear-bringer. Elzebeth took his hand and called down the dominion of dusk, and was away. I bore her no malice for leaving me behind. She knew that I could escape just as easily, but I had more to do. As I was leaving, I discarded the mists for just one moment. I slammed a fist into the doorframe, yelling, It was all I could think to say. Relating to game balance and power level, there's also the concern of having players enter the game for the first time partway through, and how you deal with that. Do you give them enough XP to be comparable to your current stable of players? Do you start them as beginning players? These are things you have to think about, and narratively it helps if you've seeded the game with kin laying around that could crystallize but haven't yet, because suddenly having Bob show up out of nowhere is a thing you can have happen in Changeling, even if it's an interregnum game and travel is difficult, because you can have Chrysalis. Yeah, I do like the idea of seeding 
kin that could crystallize. I think once you hit a certain power level, that does get a little weird. Like, we're at 150 experience. You've just crystallized. Oh my god, you know so many arts. I'm so confused. There is a certain point where there isn't a high enough remembrance level to justify that. But it's certainly interesting, I would say, even up into the 50-60 experience range and dealing with I went through Chrysalis and I immediately have that much power, which in theory could happen, would be really fascinating. I also feel like there's a certain amount of, are you giving out fixed levels of experience? Are you keeping track of that? Are you giving experience when people miss games? Most games I've been in, if you miss a game and you don't do some sort of catch-up session, you don't get XP. But I've been in one Chronicle where the ST just went, I don't want powers to get out of sync and we're adults and life happens so everybody's going to have the same xp if you do something super cool and you win like an award xp in a session that's different but my baseline is my baseline is my baseline in larp chronicles there's the idea of floor xp and in larps because those are really really long games and you have tons of different people floor xp is usually like a third of what people have been playing since the beginning have but it's still, oh, well, this game has been going on for, you know, 25 sessions. So even a new player comes in at this number, it is still not as much as people who've been playing because there's a certain sense of, okay, I've actually been doing this. There should be a reward for that. In a LARP where the players are each other's most likely antagonists, if not villains, the floor XP only being like a third makes sense. In a game where you're coming in and cooperating with everyone and you need to hold your own and not be dead weight, maybe it should be higher. But I think the idea of floor XP makes sense. And tying it back a little bit to the one-shot games, you have more of an opportunity in longer games to deal with the effects of banality and nightmare. And especially in longer games, banality and nightmare as written can be a little bit more punishing. It's important to take them as opportunities for storytelling and not just as punitive things because then you end up with players who don't want to come and play because they're running out of willpower or they're about to push through to their eighth or ninth point of banality. And I think it's also worthwhile to make banality moments as intimate and personal as possible. I had a knocker in my current game and in the last session, he did something really, really cool. And he was doing the, you know, clever player thing. And he's like, I'm going to make a thing. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to convince someone it's awesome. Eh, don't do this thing. And I know that it's because I'm a knocker. And if you push it too hard, it'll explode. And he was kind of using that as a moment of cleverness. And when it was clear to me, that's what had happened. I was like, okay, so I'm going to let you do that, but... That is a point of, like, perpetual awful for knockers. That is a thing that drives them insane that they can't be, like, the full realization of the story they think they should be. Actively using that's going to be a banality trigger. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was an interesting moment where, like, that realization of what he had done hit, and it was kind of compelling. And he went, okay, all right, you still let me do it. Having them be things like that and then they were in the dreaming for quite a while in the dreaming time it was like 12 years in autumn world time it was 10 minutes 
you know, and he made a case for the accomplishments of what they had done on that quest, being like, can we get rid of some banality? And I was like, yes, that totally makes sense. And you made a compelling argument, especially if players do make a claim that makes sense. Yeah, let let them get rid of some of that stuff. It'll make all of that feel fairer. So even if they're getting into that like eighth dot, maybe that's just a moment to make the story of how they deal with that really epic. In our game, we had a favor owed, and one of our players, their character, came to know where an anime had abandoned a husk. The favor was that this doll maker needed a, a superb crafting material to start with, so the character went to this anime's husk, which was abandoned. It couldn't be used anymore because it was too old and they went back into their anchor kind of a thing and she cannibalized it for raw materials that was a solid banality trigger for us because that character is an animist she feeds from the dreams of the land and that husk was definitely a feature of the land until she tore it apart so making banality triggers even odd ones like that looking for them because they are personal moments where something important is being lessened is important yeah that's that would be a really brutal banality trigger like that moment i kind of see that playing out in my mind cinematically and yeah yeah that's that's terrible beautifully wonderfully terrible she was lucky the other player wasn't following her around at that moment (laughs) yeah that's fair But what kind of disaster? You never told me. That is to forget. The most terrible curse that Chloe attached to the cards. If one chosen by the advocate cannot defeat the judge, then anyone who had anything to do with the Chloe cards will lose all memory of the one they love the most. The cards care most for the one whose name is inscribed on them, the one who sealed them away. But, if that person is deemed unworthy of becoming their master, to protect themselves, the cards cause the failed candidate to forget the one they care for most, and they do the same to anyone else who has had anything to do with them. So that's really talking about a lot of the things that we've considered in constructing one-shots and long-form games, the systems of most role-playing games, but in a lot of ways, especially Changeling, benefit from some tweaking depending on the scale and scope of what your particular chronicle is. It definitely helps to get a sense of what the default rules are designed for, what they're best for, and adjust from there. But we hope that some of the ideas that we've shared are useful for you and that you are able to put together some really exciting long-form and one-shot games that use some of the information we've shared. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll come back for our next conversation. This has been Walking Away from Arcadia.
The readings from this conversation were from War in Concordia, The Shattered Dream by White Wolf Publishing, Dark Ages Fae by White Wolf Publishing, and Cardcaptor Sakura by Clamp. The music from this episode was Fallen Oak by Ben McElroy and Dok Dok.